0: All right, this morning, as you heard, we're on the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Before we get to the commandment itself, I actually want to begin by addressing two misconceptions that I think we might carry into this topic, okay? Two misconceptions related to sexuality. And the first is that God doesn't, or maybe God shouldn't, have anything to do with our sexuality. So someone might say something like, why does the Bible, or why do Christians care so much about other people's sex lives. And what they probably mean by that is why should God care about my sex life? Why would God speak into my sexuality? And we won't come close to covering everything that the Bible says about sexuality or gender this morning, but it's important to say God does speak extensively on those subjects because he loves us. The male and female genders, sexuality, and sex itself are some of the best and most profound things about being a human being, and God loves us enough to talk to us about them, not to shy away from those subjects, but to give guidance and even to give commandments. And I think part of the problem is that at times, some Christians have made one particular sexual issue the make or break issue, sort of the bouncer at the door of the church, And the implication, and sometimes they'll even say it outright, is that God is willing and able to save anyone except for a person who struggles with this certain sexual sin. And that's not true. Okay, hear that loud and clear. That is not true. Any person, be they an adulterer, a pornography user, gay or transgender, not a virgin before they get married, any person who looks to Jesus for salvation is immediately and irrevocably reconciled to God in righteousness and love. But here is an important question, okay? If the God of love and life who reconciles us to himself through Jesus by his grace alone, if that God has something to say to you about your sexuality, are you willing to hear it? When it comes to sexuality and when it comes to the seventh commandment, we're following the pattern that we followed with all the other commandments, which is that relationship precedes rules and our loving God gives us rules to help our relationship with him and with other people flourish. And so if we listen to God's wisdom and guidance about our sexuality, I think the promise is that flourishing and healing and freedom and hope will be the result if we're willing to receive what he says and to try to obey him, okay? The second misconception is that Christians are the world's biggest prudes when it comes to sex, okay? That they don't enjoy sex, they certainly don't want other people to enjoy sex, and actually what they wanna do is to reduce sexuality to the narrowest narrowest and most puritanical sense of that word. Puritanical is actually a funny word, okay? The Puritans get a bad rap because all we know about them is a high school reading of sinners in the hands of an angry God and the word puritanical which nobody ever uses for anything fun, right? (laughs) I was reading a historian this week and he argued that the notion that sex and our sexuality is somehow immoral or dirty, that that actually originates from Greek philosophy which teaches that the immaterial, the spiritual, is inherently good, and the material, the body, and anything that the body enjoys is inherently bad. But what happened is that some early Christian theologians took that, Greek, that ancient Greek philosophy idea and they misapplied it to the Bible's description of sexuality. But then, thank God, along came the Puritans. And listen to what this historian says. He says, the Puritan view of sex... was a watershed in the cultural history of the West. The Puritans glorified compassionate marriage, affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure, established the idea of wedded romantic love, and exalted the place of the wife. Thus it began to uh, to restore sexual sanity by celebrating the physical act of lovemaking within marriage. So maybe puritanical sex isn't such a bad thing after all. I also read multiple studies this week that found that Christian married couples who share a devotional life, that is not just those who identify as Christian, but who go to church together and pray together and share their devotional practices together, reported the highest levels of sexual satisfaction within their marriage two to four times higher than their secular counterparts. Now here's how these two misconceptions are connected. Despite what we might have heard, God, the Bible, and Christians who healthily interpret the Bible all agree that sexuality is a marvelous gift and that it can be a powerful force for our flourishing. And it's exactly because it is so wonderful and so powerful that we ought to handle it with great care, that our sexuality is sort of like nuclear energy. Have you seen the movie Oppenheimer yet? Maybe Oppenheimer offers a better theology of sexuality than Barbie does. Mm -hmm. Properly controlled and channeled, our sexuality can be an amazing force for blessing and for growth. But improperly unleashed and out of control, it can be one of the most destructive forces in all of human experience. The pastor Tim Keller called sex covenantal superglue. When it's used in the right way, it forms a bond that makes us more healthy and whole. But when it is used wrongly, the result is going to be a mess that will take some breaking and some pain to undo. Now, with those in mind or those out of the way, on to the commandment itself. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Most literally, it means do not have sex with someone that you are not married to. And so the first thing to say about this commandment is that there might be people in this room this morning who are breaking this commandment in the most literal sense. If you are in an extramarital affair, or if you're cohabitating with a boyfriend or girlfriend, or if you're sleeping with someone you're not married to, you should feel the conviction of this commandment and hear God's call to repent and return to the path of recovery and healing and flourishing. And it might be a difficult and a painful path back, but it is better than the alternative. But for those of us who dodged that first bullet, incoming, here comes Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Okay. Remember, each of these later commandments in the Ten Commandments has sort of a, a center of the bullseye, an obvious and an explicit prohibition, but then there are, are an array of related considerations. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't adding to the Ten Commandments. He's not making the Ten Commandments more difficult. He is just explaining their full and final meaning in his kingdom. And so in Matthew 5:27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh Uh-oh. According to Jesus, if you are looking lustfully at someone who's not your spouse, if you're setting your eyes on him or her in a way that nurtures sexual desire and sexual gratification, then you are on the spectrum of adultery. Now that phrase, spectrum of adultery, that is carefully chosen, okay? We need to say that the Bible has a category for degrees of sinfulness. And so what Jesus is not saying here is that if you look lustfully at someone else, it is the same thing as committing an extramarital affair, right? But what he is doing is giving us a loving and a serious warning. He's saying, okay, these these sins that seem like less of a big deal are on the same spectrum of adultery and you need to be open to the reality that they might be more connected than you think that they are. That lustful looks are somewhere on that spectrum and there's something to take seriously. He's telling us that because he loves us. And I suspect that the most rampant infraction of this commandment today in the world that we live in is pornography use. Looking at pornography, that is using the technology enabled objectification of women and men made in the image of God for our cheap loveless gratification is a sin on the spectrum of adultery. And we should say we live in a time of sexual confusion, sexual consumerism, and maybe even sexual insanity and it is hard to resist the temptation of pornography when you always have an internet browser in your pocket and the cultural narrative that porn is normal and healthy but cheap relationshipless gratification has really always been a temptation which is why thomas watson another puritan way back in the early 1600s said quote pornographic pictures secretly convey poison to the heart using pornography is like hooking up a slow drip IV of poison to your heart. And Jesus calls us to recognize that, to repent, that is to turn back and to get on the road to freedom and healing. And none of these issues, by the way, none of these issues that we're gonna talk about this morning are issues for men only, okay? That's important to say. If you are struggling with pornography use, talk to another Christian and start to pursue healing together. Besides pornography, the seventh commandment and Jesus are telling us that lustful looks in general, whether on screens or in the streets, whether in the office, the gym, the church, even entertaining lustful imaginations, is something to take very seriously. Don't believe the world's lie that it's no big deal. Jesus even says that it is worth taking drastic action to fight back against these sins, now, by this definition, by Jesus' definition, I have committed adultery in my heart this week. And that's a tragic truth and a painful conviction. I am a sexual sinner on the spectrum of adultery, and I need major mercy and a powerful deliverance. I need help and healing for my sexuality, and I think we all do. So here's our trajectory for this morning honest, vulnerable conviction, to Jesus for forgiveness, and through Jesus unto freedom and flourishing. We go to Jesus for forgiveness from these sins, and through Jesus, in and through Christ, we live for freedom and for flourishing. Are you sexually broken like I am? Do you feel convicted? Do you need help? That's the first step. It's only when we come to Jesus as our real selves with our real need that we find real forgiveness and the way to real change. Now to understand how that happens, we actually need to take a step back and discuss something even deeper than sexuality. There's something even more true about you than your gender or your sexual identity. Did you know that? There's another common false narrative that our gender identity or our sexual attraction is the truest, most determinative thing about us, but there's something that's even deeper. And here it is. You were made for covenant relationships. You were made for covenant relationships. From the beginning, at the very core of your being, you were designed to exist in covenant relationships, covenantal connection with God and covenantal connections with other people. So in other words, your general relationality and the type of relationship that you were made for is even truer and deeper about you than your sexuality or your gender identity, okay? That's important. To understand the seventh commandment, how we find freedom and flourishing through it, we need to understand the difference between consumer relationships and covenant relationships. In a fallen world, and as broken people, where we almost always end up by our own devices is in consumeristic relationships. Relationships that are based on what do you have to offer me and what do I have to offer you and what is going to be the nature of the transaction here? What have you done for me lately? Relationships that are consumeristic are transactional, consumptive, exploitative, and ultimately draining. And so we might say something, we wouldn't really say it, but subconsciously what's going on is we think, I'll be your friend as long as you don't share anything too needy or dark, or maybe even more dangerously, you'll be my friend as long as I don't share anything too needy or too dark. I'll go to church here as long as the worship fits my preferences and the leadership doesn't get too demanding as long as people don't get up into my personal lives too much. I'll keep my family ties as long as they don't get too annoying or offensive. And I'll stay in this romantic relationship as long as you meet my needs, including my sexual needs, and generally hold up your end of the bargain." Consumeristic relationships are highly conditional. The conditions precede the commitment, or we could say the rules precede the relationship. And the world that we live in is full of a consumeristic understanding of relationship and love. Covenantal relationships, on the other hand, aren't transactional. They're committed. They're not consuming. They are mutually self-giving. They're not exploitative. They are regenerative. And ultimately, they're not draining, they're fulfilling. So they say, I will be your friend, especially when you share the hardest, heaviest things. I'll join this church and intentionally submit myself to other Christians, let them get into my personal business and speak into my life. I'll try to love and to honor my family even when they are difficult. And I'll marry myself to this woman or this man for better or for worse, till death do us part. Covenantal relationships are committed through difficulty and the committed relationship precedes the rules for that relationship. Now, we should, a little side note, we should say this idea can be and has been abused. So if a spouse or a family member or a church leader says to you, I expect you to commit yourself to me. Meanwhile, I'll do whatever harm I want to do to you. That's not a covenantal relationship, that's abuse, and there should be consequences for the abuser. But generally speaking, in covenantal relationships, you are committing to love and to submit to other people, even when sin makes it hard to do that. And you're asking them to love you, especially when you reveal the deepest things about yourself to them. Now, here's the point. The more central a relationship is in your life, the more determinative it will be to your quality of life. So if your closest and most important relationships are essentially consumeristic, that will eventually leave you empty and unknown and lonely. But if your closest relationships are covenantal, that is, if there is a promise of commitment, even in the midst of struggles and sins, that's transformational. The counterintuitive thing that Christianity says is that when we relinquish our rights and our requirements in covenant relationships with other people, that's when we actually find true love and the deepest life. Now, this isn't to say that every relationship in our life should be covenantal, but our most central relationships have to be. And we can sort of think of this as almost like concentric circles, okay? Okay. The set of covenant relationships that you were designed for is first and foremost, a relationship with God, a covenantal relationship with God, and second, all people were made for a covenant relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ as they put their faith in Jesus for their salvation. Within that, some of us are called to one very special individual relationship, one man and one woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. And so, by the way, if you're here this morning and you're single, maybe you're called to singleness for this season of your life, or maybe God is calling you to long-term singleness, that doesn't mean that you are lesser or that your love life is lesser, that your relational life is lesser. Instead, what it means is that God is calling you to seek seek deep connectedness and communion with him and with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. The church is supposed to cherish single people, because they teach us something vital about covenant relationships and vice versa. And similarly, if you have a broken, dysfunctional or abusive biological family, God is calling you to embrace the church as your true family. That if you're a Christian and your family isn't, it really is true that your brothers and sisters in Christ are the more central relationship, the more determinative relationship in your life. Now here's the big question. Think about this one. Are covenantal relationships conditional or unconditional? Is this type of relationship conditional or unconditional? And the answer is yes, okay? They're both and they have to be both, okay? A relationship that is entirely conditional where every decision and action could mean the end of that relationship is legalistic and it's full of fear and hiding. But a relationship that is entirely unconditional, that is, no matter what I do to you or you do to me, there will be no consequences, that's not really love. Love entails giving someone else enough weight in your life that they might hurt you. Transformative covenantal relationships are both highly conditional and radically unconditional, they entail the highest expectations and ambitions for the relationship and the deepest mercy, the most unshakable love. And the question we should ask is how is that possible? How is it possible for a relationship to be conditional and unconditional at the same time? And the answer that God gives us is Jesus. It is only possible in and through Jesus Christ. Only the gospel has the power to make the most central relationship in your life perfectly covenantal. Do you want to see what the consequences for your sin look like? How much your sin hurts a loving God? Look at Jesus on the cross, bearing the conditionality, bearing all of the consequences in your place but do you want to see how unconditional, how deep and unshakable God's love is for you? Look at Jesus on the cross, willingly doing everything necessary to bring you into the family, to bring you into a covenant relationship, even a marriage. Do you wanna know how much God loves you just as you are right now, all of your dignity and depravity included? Look at Jesus, gentle and lowly, over and over again in the Gospels, being close and kind and merciful and befriending sinners. That's how he is towards you and me. But do you want to see how high God's ambitions are for you, how high his desires are for you? Look at the resurrected Jesus and the holy, beautiful kingdom that he has made you a citizen of, the family that he has brought you into. It's only when this covenant relationship, a relationship of deepest love and highest hope in Jesus, becomes the core of your relational experience that you become free to flourish in the other relationships that you were made for. All right, now let's circle back to the seventh commandment. What does this have to do with the seventh commandment? Because of Jesus and because of our covenant relationship with God through him, first, we know where forgiveness for sexual sin is found. And second, we understand how sexual flourishing happens. So because of Jesus, we know where forgiveness is found and we know how flourishing happens. First, Jesus shows us where forgiveness for adultery and sexual sin can be found. Now remember, according to the Sermon on the Mount... What Jesus said, all of us have committed serious sins on the spectrum of adultery. But there's another saying of Jesus that we need to know about that corresponds with that. And it's in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, probably not too long after Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees and sort of their spies, their operatives, they catch a woman in the act of adultery. And they drag her out as a mob into the street and bring her to Jesus. And they say, teacher, you know what the law says. This woman deserves the most severe punishment. And Jesus' response is absolutely amazing. The first thing that he does is that he stoops down on the ground and he starts doodling in the dirt with his finger. You can imagine the shame that this woman would have felt as she's dragged out in public with her most serious sin, and Jesus does something unexpected and weird and even a little bit silly to take the attention off of her. So all of a sudden, all of her shame is redirected at him. Who is this weirdo doodling in the dirt? And then he looks up and he says, let anyone who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he looks back down and he starts doodling again. And one by one, the mob dissipates. They all walk away until it's just Jesus and the woman. And he says to her, John chapter 8, verse 10, where did they all go? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then listen to what Jesus says and hear him saying this to you. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Here's what the pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said about that story. He said, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery, no. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of Jesus, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. But also hear these words from our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. These were Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery and they are also his words to us. If you, in your moment of deepest shame, when you are caught in the act, can see the face of Jesus and hear him say to you, I don't condemn you and I'm inviting you to freedom. I'm inviting you to something better. He says both things to you. That is where the beginning of sexual healing and the beginning of flourishing is found. There's a footnote on that John 8 story. Okay, which is that historians tell us that that story is not in the earliest copies of the Gospel of John. It probably wasn't in the first copy of the biography of Jesus that John wrote down. And so the question is, why do we have it in our Bibles today? And I think the only logical answer is because at some point that woman went to her brothers and sisters in Christ and told them the story of what had happened to her. She was the only one who's there at the end of the story. She's the only one who could have reported those profound and powerful words of Jesus. In other words, the woman's vulnerable confession of where she found forgiveness and freedom changed not only her life, but also the lives of countless others. It's changing people's lives today. If you want freedom from sexual sin... The first step is to go to Jesus and hear him say, I don't condemn you. But the second step is to go to a brother or a sister in Christ and tell them the truth. Forgiveness comes from Jesus. Freedom is found in the context of honest, vulnerable community, honest relationship. Last point, flourishing, including sexual flourishing, is found in a network of covenant relationships. Network might not actually be the best word. It's a little too mechanical, right? It's more like it is found in the ecosystem of covenant relationships that you were made for. We don't have time to dig too deep into this, but in Ephesians chapter five, Paul is talking about marriage, and he's even talking about sex within marriage, and he says something amazing. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are all members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2, the first marriage, Adam and Eve. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about sex within the context of marriage there. And then he says, this, is a prof- this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, there's a lot that we could dig into in those verses, but the big point, I mean, the the logic there is incredible, right? The big point is that love and flourishing happen within an ecosystem of covenantal relationships, and so every individual Christian has a covenant relationship with God through Jesus, and we're called to nurture and to cultivate that relationship. Married people are called to grow in mutually blessing, mutually honoring sexuality with one another. If you're married, if God has called you to be married, then, then sex is for that one specific covenant relationship, and within that context, it has an amazing power to bond people together and to teach us something about the covenant love of Jesus. But then in every other relationship, that is with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, we're called to treat them as just that, to fill our minds with the truth that every other Christian that I meet is my brother or my sister. And that what love and relationship looks like for us is different from what it looks like in marriage, but it is just as important and just as covenantal. And within that framework, God teaches us something powerful about his love and he begins to heal us and lead us to flourishing, including sexual healing and sexual flourishing earlier this week our, our women's director jen guzzi she sent this quote i thought it was a great quote i think it's a great quote to end on to sort of frame how sh- how should we think about our relationships with other christians within the church somebody asked me after the first service by the way as it pertains to non-believers to non-christians you are still called to fill your mind with the truth that they are made in the image of god and that sexual impropriety with them is a serious sin because they are all image bearers But as it pertains to Christians, we're called to treat each other as brothers and sisters and recognize that we are dealing with sons and daughters of the king. Listen to this quote. Take it with you. It's Sheila Gregory from her book, The Great Sex Rescue. Defeating lust is not, and this goes both ways, by the way, okay? This is not just men to women. This is also women to men. Defeating lust is not about limiting a man's encounters with women, It's about empowering men to treat the women around them as whole people, daughters of Christ. The key to defeating lust is not to avoid looking at women, it's to actually see them. Do you see Jesus, your covenant savior and brother? If you're married, do you see your spouse as the most important covenant relationship that God has given you? But if you are a Christian, Do you look around this room and see sons and daughters of the king, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you really see them? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't shy away from the topics that we find difficult or uncomfortable or the topics that we might shy away from, God. We thank you that in your word you speak truth to us and you speak love to us, you speak conviction and you speak healing about everything, including our sexuality. But that you care enough about us to speak honestly and lovingly about these topics to us. And I pray for each one of us in this room, we feel conviction in different ways. Would you help us to take some truth that convicts us, but also some grace that comforts and restores us through Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.